morning. Well, I have to take a survey to begin all of this. So I want to know how many of you at some point in your life have seen a physical therapist? Sounds like I should ask who has not seen a physical therapist. Okay, the second question is, I have to ask, is anybody here actually willing to admit that you are a physical therapist? Is anybody here a physic? We see? We're, okay, okay. Well, we're going to applaud you, but I mean, you have to know that people have such mixed feelings about you. We don't know whether to throw things at you or love you. Uh, why is that? Well, the, uh, the few times I've seen a physical therapist, uh, it has been, and, and I'm going to guess that in some of your cases, you've seen a physical therapist for the same reasons I have, and that is because I have hurt myself exercising improperly. Anybody going to admit that? That's why you've seen a physical therapist? Yeah, I've seen some kind of... Yeah, okay. Well, why does that happen? Well, it happens because when I go to the gym, I do not use one of those people in the red shirts we call a trainer. And why do I not use a trainer? Well, number one, I'm cheap. Number two, I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to be told what to do or how to hold my elbows, how to do it. And what results in that? I get to go help pay for your hot tub. You're welcome. Well, if, uh, if you've been to any of the services up here this summer, you know we're in the, in the middle of a series called The Engaging God, or The God Who Engages Us. We've looked at the God who engages us by healing, by loving, by redeeming, all kinds of ways the scripture portrays God as the engaging God, the personal God who pursues and personally engages us. Today we're going to look at a part of scripture where the, the engaging God turns toward those times when, when life is hard. Uh, and, and sometimes it's hard because we've made it hard, and sometimes it's hard because we've done nothing, it's just hard. But, but at any rate, part of why it's hard is that God doesn't seem to help. And sometimes it's hard because we're trying to follow our Lord, and things just get worse. And we pray and pray, and our prayers seem to just bounce right back at us. I mean, has anybody ever had that feeling as you've tried to follow Jesus Christ? Uh, th this is probably the least popular aspect of the God who engages us, but friends, we're all in grave danger without this. Uh, it, it, because it's easy to think about the engaging God when we sit here in a beautiful part of God's creation. It's easy to think about the engaging God when, uh, when we get that clean report from the physician. It's easy to think about the engaging God when, when life has turned well for us, when our relationships are, are firing on all cylinders, when we're hitting it out of the park in those key areas of life. It's easy to think about 
how God is engaging us and, and good to us and favoring us in those times. But it's a little bit of a different story, isn't it, when, when we try to follow Jesus and our, our family or our friends or, or just those in our circles of influence resist and oppose that or, or roll their eyes and push back. It's, it's a little bit different when, when the troubles that beset our lives just seem relentless and God does not seem to help. It's a little bit different to think about the engaging God when, when we face costly, difficult decisions about following Christ and we take that high road and it all blows up in our face. It's a little bit different to think about the engaging God when that unthinkable tragedy, that unthinkable phone call comes and we have no clue how we will survive. But friends, those are the times when God is engaging us just as well. But we have to look at that. See, how, how is it that God is engaging us when that is our storyline? When we're not sure how we'll get through. When we're not sure whether it's really worth the cost of following Jesus faithfully. Well, we're dealing with the God who engages us by training us. Again, we've looked at God who heals and God who forgives and God who loves and God who redeems, but today we're going to look at a text in Scripture where we see God who trains. And um, everybody who follows, unlike the gym, everybody who follows Jesus gets the trainer. Everybody who enters this gym works with the trainer. No exceptions. Now, the training doesn't look the same for everyone. Not at all. And sometimes this training feels quite counterintuitive to us because when God engages us as a trainer, uh, sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it even it, it, it feels like we're abandoned. And, and so in order for us to benefit from and respond to the God who engages us as a trainer, we have to know something about why, in the first place, we need God to engage us this way. Why do we need God to train us? And, and what does that training actually look like? What, is it, what does it feel like? How does that function? And then maybe as important as anything, what actually comes from that? So if you've got a copy of the scriptures with you or uh, can look on with somebody close to you or look onto their, uh, their phone, I'd like for you to find the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. And when you find that, we're going to start reading in verse 4. So Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as children? It says... My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his child. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate children at all. 
Moreover, we have all had parents who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? Our parents disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. And later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, the, the background to what we just read is significant because this was written to, as best we can tell, mostly Jewish Christians who by this point in their Christian journey had been steadily worn down by hostility and opposition to their faith. Now, the writer tells us that, uh, at least for these folks, as yet, there had been no physical persecution. Nobody had died. Uh, nobody had been beaten up or jailed, apparently. But there was this, in some form, this relentless, wearing hostility and opposition to their faith, such that many of these Jewish Christians were thinking seriously about bailing. Many of them, many of them were, were looking over their shoulder and second-guessing their commitment to Jesus Christ. Is this, is this really worth it? Is this, is this really all that it was cracked up to be? They're starting to rethink their commitment to Christ. Again, not because of any, any uh, extravagant price they were having to pay, but just this relentless, wearing effect of running into the wind because they're trying to follow Jesus. And, and we know that every follower of Jesus encounters that, don't, don't we? It doesn't look the same for all of us, but anybody who jumps in the ring and follows Jesus is going to face opposition. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a plain fact from Scripture. And, and, and unless that is part of our journey in some fashion, we have to ask ourselves, am I, am I really in the game? Am I really in the game if, if the world around me just finds me no different, finds my values and my commitments and my decisions no different than theirs? And this wearing effect can... can eat away at our commitment to Jesus Christ. Now, the strange feature of this text is that the writer <laughs> says he's trying to encourage us. He says, my, my child, have you forgotten that word of encouragement that comes? Now, when we think of encouragement, it, it might be easy for us to think of encouragement as those, those cheerleading comments. Oh, you're great. You're the best. You're doing fine. It's just perfect. Uh, this sounds like strange encouragement, doesn't it? Uh, it's not that kind of encouragement. This is the kind of encouragement that encourages us by telling us what's really going on. It's the type of encouragement that comes by giving us perspective on what we're encountering. Uh, this, uh, this statement of encouragement that the writer quotes is actually taken. It's a quote from two places in the Old Testament, the 94th Psalm and the third Proverb. Uh, if you look at Psalm 94 and Proverbs 3, you'll find these words. Don't despise or take lightly the Lord's discipline because he's disciplining you for your good. Uh, now, many of, the, as you, many of you may know, many, if not most, of the Psalms were written by King David. Uh, Psalm 94, we don't know. It's not labeled, so we don't know e exactly whether David wrote it, but there's a good chance he did. Uh, we know that Solomon, his son, uh, penned those proverbs, most of them, and so uh, a fair chance that uh, that 
King Solomon, when he wrote the Proverbs, was kind of looking back at what Dad had written. And, you know, I can, in my imagination, I can kind of see Solomon uh, writing this down and thinking to himself, rats, the old man was right. (laughs) Because he says the same thing that likely his dad said. Uh, Now, we need to pay attention, though, if we're going to get some perspective on, on what this encouragement is and what's being said here that is so engaging and so life-giving from God, we've got to know what it is. Well, in most of our English translations, uh, the, the, the key word we want to pick up on is discipline. But that word discipline has a different set of connotations in Scripture than it might have for many of us. Because when we think of discipline... Where do our minds tend to go? You've done something wrong, right? You're being disciplined. But the, the Greek word that our English translations uh, show as discipline is actually just a word that means to train a child. That's why I'm calling this the God who trains. Uh, it may, in fact, be corrective in the sense we think of at times, but to train a child involves a whole range of ways of engaging a child to shape and strengthen and direct and focus that child. Why? So that that child can live well, can survive well, can make good decisions, can be all that that child was meant to be. And that's the word that is repeatedly translated in our Bibles, discipline, but it's simply the word to train a child. He also says to us, uh, quoting the psalm and the proverb, don't despise this or don't take this lightly, depending on which translation you have. Um, that word is a word that literally means light, as <laughs> in lightweight. And what it's telling us is don't, um, d- don't take this lightly, don't dismiss this, or we might paraphrase it this way, don't miss the point. Don't let this be lost on you. When the Lord is engaging you as a trainer, when the Lord is is shaping and strengthening and doing those things that are giving you life but may not feel like that, don't miss the significance of what's going on. Don't lose the point here. Don't blow this off. Don't ignore this. Now, why is all that necessary? Why is this discipline or this training of a child, this engaging God who is doing this painful stuff to us. Why is that necessary? Well, I think we all know at at, at a deep level in our hearts that we're made for more, right? We're made for for lives that that are more than what we experience. And in fact, we're made for a life that no longer comes naturally or easily. I mean, on this side of this, of uh, that, history-altering experience that Scripture uh, recounts. We call it the fall, where humanity tumbles into rebellion against God from which it cannot redeem itself. This side of all that, which is where all of us live, we start out, in a sense, with our hands tied behind our back. We start out made for a life that we can't live. None of us bring to the table in life all that we need to live well before God, to enjoy God, to to give thanks to God, to worship God. 
unless God comes to us, unless God trains us, unless God engages us, none of us have what it takes to do that. And as we've already seen, following Jesus faithfully always, always makes us run into a headwind. Doesn't look the same for all of us. But anyone who follows Jesus faithfully is going to run into the wind. Sometimes that may involve an extremely costly decision. Sometimes that may involve a gut-wrenching sacrifice. And sometimes, maybe many times for people like us, it just involves the, the relentless wearing effect of a culture that thinks we're idiots. I mean, it's not easy to be faithful to Jesus when every value that a Christ follower would hold is the subject of the funniest people on TV. It's not easy to faithfully follow Jesus when the values that give life to us are the values that are glamorized in our media. I mean, the, the, when the values that give life to us are the ones that are, are, are mocked in the media. When, when those things that destroy life are glamorized. That is not easy. And yet the, inf- the effect of that on us can be so insidious that we don't even know what's happening. So faithfulness is never easy. That's why we need it. We, and, and every one of us need the spiritual muscle and the stamina that, that we don't bring with us into life. You know, that, this is why I don't play golf. I know that connection is obvious for you. This is, um, when, I, when, I first, when I got a first set of golf clubs at age 16, uh, I never took a lesson. Uh, you can probably see a pattern now because I'm, I'm cheap and I don't want to be told what to do. Uh, and that's always worked very well for me in life. Um, and uh, it has worked especially well with my golf game because by this point in life, uh, I have acquired so many bad habits and I've never had a single golf lesson uh, that if I were to take a golf lesson, uh, it would, the, the game would no longer be fun uh, because I'd be trying to correct all those bad habits. And in some way, that's how every one of us come into life. Now, now how does God train us? How does God engage us as a trainer? Uh, now, in, in what I want us to look at for the next couple of minutes, some of the key words, I need to acknowledge up front that some of these words may trigger experiences that are quite painful for some of us here. Because some of the words that the Scripture uses may bring back memories of, of horribly wrong and abusive experiences that we've had. In some cases, it may trigger memories of, of abuse that we ourselves have rendered. So I want to get that on the table and, and just to say that we, we've got to let Scripture reshape our understanding of these concepts rather than our own toxic experiences of them dismissing Scripture, if you see the difference. So how does God train us? How does God engage us as this trainer that we need so desperately? Well, under this category of what our translations call discipline, or in the Greek text, is simply training a child, we find several words. It says, don't take lightly the Lord's discipline when the Lord rebukes you. Now, that rebuking is, let's just say it, it's corrective. 
when, when you and I need rebuked, there is nothing in us that likes that. Unless you are just a way better person than I am. And I'll give you credit that you may be. But I'll just speak for my... There is nothing in me that likes being rebuked by the Lord. There is nothing in me that likes being told I've done wrong. There's nothing in me that, that, that enjoys having to confront the dark side of my actions. I think I may have told this story in a previous year up here, but I'll just hope that most of you weren't here when I've spoken before. <laughs> uh, on the many occasions when I've had to uh, approach my wife, who happens to be sitting right in front of me, so I'm not going to look at her. On the many occasions when I've had to approach my wife and apologize or ask her forgiveness for something I've done, something I've said, uh, I always hate it when she looks at me and says to me, I forgive you. That's the last thing I want her to say. Now, you would think that's what I just asked for, right? Lord, uh, uh, hey Lord, that was a Freudian slip. Sharon, Lord Sharon. Um, Sharon, which, I'm sorry I said that. I'm sorry I did that. Forgive me for that. And when she looks me in the eye and she says, I forgive you, something in me dies. Why would that be? Because I don't really want her to say, I forgive you. Can you guess what I really want her to say? It doesn't matter. It's no big deal. It's fine. Because if she were to say that, she lets me off the hook and trivializes what I've done. But when she looks me in the eye and says, I forgive you, that means she's acknowledging, yeah, that was wrong. And yes, that did hurt me. But I forgive you. And, and you know what? We can go somewhere with that. But if, I'm, if, if what I've done is only trivialized or masked or polished, and if she just politely says, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it, it's no big deal, when in fact it is a big deal, what's going to happen? I'm going to do it again. Why? Because it's really no big deal. Because <laughs> it's really okay. But when she says, I forgive you, that stings me at the core. But it also changes me. See, when the Lord rebukes us, there is nothing in us that takes well to that, and yet it's so life-giving. He also uses the word chastening. And that, that word chastening speaks of the, uh, it's also used of the, uh, the consequences of breaking a rule in, a, in an athletic contest. And chasing is, is, chastening is a, a, a signal that all of our choices have consequences. All of our choices lead somewhere. And in verse 7, you'll see that the writer says, I want you to endure all of this as training. Now, in some of your translations, it will, it will say, endure hardship as discipline. The word hardship is not in there. It simply says, endure as training. That's all it says in, in the original language, endure as training. So he, he's referring to all that he said before. Everything that's coming before, endure this as the Lord's training. Now, here's the, the, the interesting part about the Lord's engaging us as a trainer, particularly when there seems to be rebuke or chastening or correction involved. If you look at, look at the context here, 
where these were believers who were just taking it on the chin from their culture. These were believers who were, who were going into the headwind and who were facing hostility about their Christian faith. We don't have any account here of these people making bad choices or these people sinning or these people doing anything that the Lord had to rebuke them for. So where does the, where's all this rebuke and chastening stuff come from? Well, here's the point, friends. You and I can, in, in very few occasions, trace exactly how the Lord's hand is involved in the events of our lives. Now, we'll, we'll often say, oh, the Lord did this and the Lord did that, and, and then when things go wrong, we'll say, well, why did the Lord do that to me? Or why did the Lord bring that into my life? Well, you know, the, the Scripture never really gives us a formula for exactly how God's hand is involved in the events of our lives. But when God is our engaging trainer, we can know this, that no matter what hardship, no matter what opposition, no matter what uh, tragedy we face, God is going to train us through that. There's something for us to learn. There's something for us to learn about ourselves. There's something for us to learn about about how well we do or don't trust the Lord. There's something for us to learn about, about the, the depth to which we need forgiveness, even if a hardship is not directly related to a sin. And that's where I, I, I want us to, to really grab on to what this writer is saying, because this reflects the Lord's engaging commitment to us. And in various verses, he says, as children. Verse 5, he says, he addresses you as children. You belong. Verse 6, he does this for those he loves. Verse 6 again, everyone he accepts as a child. Verse 7, God is treating you as children. Have, have any of you here ever had to take a child into surgery? Anybody had to do that? Painstaking. Child doesn't get it child may be screaming, may be terrified. And yet, you do it because they're your child. You're committed to them. You love them. You engage them. And you're, if you're not going to train them in that way, you're going to let somebody else have put that training hand and, and reshape their body so that they can, they can be well. Um, the God who engages us by training us is the God who, in all of our hardships, is going to mirror back to us something about ourselves. The God who engages us as a trainer is the God who sometimes is going to nag us and irritate us when we live against the grain of how He made us. The God who engages us as a trainer is a God who's going to relentlessly develop in us the capacities to really live. Just as with a physical trainer, none of us can develop those capacities. None of, none of us just inherently have those capacities. They have to be developed. That's why in all kinds of sports or arts, we submit ourselves to the guidance of a coach, a trainer, a mentor, because we can't do what we were made to do unless somebody trains us, unless somebody makes us do things that we don't understand. Unless somebody makes us do things that at the time hurt, 
Somebody puts us in situations and experiences that we just want to run from. But friends, that's the God who engages us. And if you're anything like me, I've got countless ways of resisting that. Countless ways of thinking, I know how to do this myself. Countless ways of thinking, I can do it better. Countless ways of thinking, God's just walked away from me. God's not paying attention to me. God doesn't really care. But this text shows us that the exact opposite is taking place. God engages us as a trainer because he loves us. And and we'll never see that as an encouraging thing unless we have a vision for what comes out of that. And that vision has to really own our hearts. So what is it that comes out of God's training? The text here calls this a harvest of righteousness and peace. What does that mean, a harvest of righteousness and peace? Well, when we think about the word righteousness, we may think about a, a holier-than-thou person who insulates themselves in a moral bubble so that nothing taints or contaminates them. But in the Scripture, righteousness is a relational concept. It means to be standing in right relationship with another person, and here, with God, but also with God's people. And so when God engages us as a trainer, and when we, when we get it, when we see what's going on, and when we respond to that, when we take it seriously, when we lean into that, when we let God train us, what comes out of this, this is this vast bumper crop, this enormous capacity to love, and to be loved, and to forgive, and to receive forgiveness and to endure, and to hope, and to sacrifice, and to serve in ways that are life-giving across the board. That's the bumper crop of righteousness and peace. It's this enormously expanded capacity to flourish and to live. But none of us can do that without a trainer. I imagine that every young musician fantasizes about sitting on the platform at Carnegie Hall. I imagine that every young athlete fantasizes about standing on the podium with their national anthem playing and a medal around their neck. And that's what keeps those young musicians practicing those scales all alone when their fingers start to cramp. That's what keeps those young athletes pushing and pushing when their lungs and their legs are on fire because they've got that vision of what life is going to be like as a result of this training. And that, friends, the Scripture tells us is so that, verse 9, we live. That's the good life, by Scripture's definition. We share in His holiness. We grow up. We grow up to be mature, mature like God, our, our parent. Harvestness of righteousness. Now, the question we want to end with is simply this. Is it worth it to let God train us? Is it worth it to keep trusting God when He does not for a time seem to answer our prayers? when the pain does not subside? Is it worth it to let God keep training us 
when what we never thought possible takes our legs right out from underneath us? Is it worth it to let God keep training us when we can't think of anything we've done wrong and we keep trying to do the right thing and trust God and make right decisions and it just keeps getting worse? Is it worth it to trust the trainer? Friends, I don't know most of you or most of your stories, but you know we all share a common humanity and many of us, most of us here perhaps, share a common faith in Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, we all get the trainer. Everybody gets engaged by God as the trainer. And of all the ways that God engages us, that may be the one way that we misunderstand the most. That may be the one way that we push back against. I want God to engage me as a a lover, as a redeemer, I want to God to engage, but God's going to engage me as a trainer. I'm going to, well, now wait a minute. Let's think, let's talk about that. But everybody who follows Jesus gets the trainer. Why? Because everybody who follows Jesus needs the trainer. Why? Because everybody who follows Jesus heads into the wind. And everybody who heads into the wind at some point will ask whether it's worth it. Every one of us who follow Jesus will at some point ask, can I really do this? Is this really worth it? Is God really going to come through for me? Is God really trustworthy? And when God engages us as a trainer, he builds those capacities to trust him that way, those capacities to live. And friend, that's part of what we call the gospel, the good news, the great news that what we need in life, we don't bring to the table But through Jesus Christ, God gives that to us. God commits himself to us in such a sometimes ruthless, tenacious way that we squirm and wiggle and find every way out of it, and yet he's trying to give us life. That's the God who engages us as a trainer. That's part of the gospel. That's the God who can be trusted. Trusted with our questions and doubts. Trusted with our fatigue. Trusted with our problems. Trusted with our risks. Trusted with our temptations to bail. Trusted in every single way. Why? Because he engages us. and Because he relentlessly trains us. Our invitation today is to come to the gym. Let the trainer have his way. Let's pray together. Our God, we, uh, we love to thank you for all the blessings that enrich our lives and that fill our lungs with fresh air and pay our bills and solve problems and and we do thank you for all of that and and yet today this text this sobering text we've looked at in your word pushes us to thank you for how committed you are to us as one who trains us one who 
either brings experiences into our lives or makes use of experiences in our lives to show us things about ourselves we must know. Thank you for that. Thank you for mirroring ourselves back to us. Thank you for for continuing to, to offer forgiveness and healing and to strengthen those spiritual muscles every one of us need to live faithfully and to flourish in this world before you. Thank you for that, Lord. We praise you for that, and we pray that you would give us each the trust, the faith, the capacity to let you train us in and through whatever you allow into our lives, whatever that is. Help us to this end, Lord, we pray with thanksgiving and with trust. In the name of Jesus, amen.